I'm Matt Schrader, and this is a special bonus interview episode with longtime friend of James Cameron, Randy Frakes, an accomplished author, screenwriter, award-winning investigative journalist, as we talked about last time. And there's a lot we didn't talk about yet. We left off at Piranha 2, and we still have to talk about Terminator. Yes. You'll also know Randy as the author of the hugely successful novelizations of both Terminator and Terminator 2. But let's start with the Terminator. James gets fired from Piranha 2. He's not happy about this. He doesn't have much to his name. And you offer to let him crash at your place in Pomona. Did you have a little worry for him at that point? Well, I knew it was a stall in his career that he he got a good start, but then he just partnered up with the wrong guy in the wrong project. And that, you know, they didn't understand care or concerned with his talent. They didn't want it. They never were interested in using him as a director. He was just a, a patsy and, uh, you know, and he didn't have real control over the project. So it was very frustrating for him, extremely frustrating. I imagine it's the way Kubrick felt after Spartacus, you know, like I'm never doing that again. And so he, he was dejected and he was living out of a penny jar from very little money that he had. He was actually earning money making the posters for Prana 2, which was humbling for him. And, but he made great posters and, uh, he painted them. He painted them, and, and uh, they were used as both the one-sheet poster, and they were also used in the newspaper ads. There was a full-page ad for when it, when it premiered, and it was his artwork. And uh, that was an amazing experience. Very rarely does that happen. And right. So we would discuss how to recover from that. He was about as low as you can get in this business. And, you know, a lot of people will tell you stories about celebrities who are hugely important and, and impactful in this business now who had these humble moments in their lives. And he had his share, and that was it. Fortunately for him, it wasn't that long. It was about seven months. And he, But he rallied, you know. It's not how you fall down, it's how you get up, that kind of thing. And he was very well, well aware of that. And he said, okay, well, what can I do to fix this? And I said, you've got to write a script that is so damn good that you refuse to sell it unless they let you direct it. And he said, well, how do you do that? And he says, I'll teach you. So I had a little card table, a little rickety card table in this tiny little kitchen off of this little guest house. And we sat down there and we systematically, typically of Jim and of the Terminator, systematically went through the top five films in the last 10 years in the box office and variety magazines. And we saw that almost all of them were either fantasy or science fiction. Mm. So I said, okay, Jim, you've got the basic, you got the beginning, the middle, and the end. Go out, go out and write it, you know, based on what I've taught you about all these other things. And he said, yeah, don't you want to write it with me? And I said, well, I would like to, but I think you got such a good take on this. I want to see what you do by yourself. If you want me to help you later, I'll do it. You suggested Bill Wisher do some of the dialogue, make a dialogue pass. That was later. Oh, okay. He comes back with a treatment, a 60-page scriptment. He calls it a scriptment because it has dialogue like a script, but it's also short. And it was very detailed and laid out the whole movie pretty much as it was filmed eventually. And, and he said, so you want to help me write it? And I said, man, I, I got this other project I'm trying to do. I'm trying to launch this other thing, a script I just wrote. And I got I to gotta work with these guys to make changes or I'd gladly do it. But also I think any idea I'd have would be superfluous because I think you've nailed this so perfectly. I, anything I contribute might dilute it. I think you're okay. You don't need me, you know? And he said, really? And I said, yeah. And I said, if you need someone to help you with dialogue, get Bill Wisher because he's really good. You know, he's really good at it. And he said, oh yeah, Bill, see if he's available. So I didn't work on the Terminator screenplay at past that point. Um, I was just in the gestation stages, sort of a consultant. 
Jim is offered $450,000 for the script. Yeah, there was a, an, a, a war, a bidding war. But he couldn't direct it was yeah. the way that this worked out. And, and you recommended to him that he turn down the money. Yeah. Why? He, he came to me and he said, look, I'm getting all this money. And I said, Jim, that will give you, that will give you some credibility as a screenwriter. Is that what you want? You want to be a screenwriter? And he said, no, I want to be a director. And I said, well, remember how, why we began this project? I told you I had to write a script that was so good that people wanted it so bad. And obviously they want it bad because they're offering you over $450,000, which is almost as much as, as anyone else would ever get in this that's town. That's a house. That's, that's, that's an enormous amount of a money. A couple houses, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, very few other screenwriters have ever gotten that much money on, on a first script. And so I said, so that means they want it, Okay. So how bad do they want it? Are they going to offer you more money? What are you going to do with that money? Spend it and sit around in your house and try and write another script and people just treat you like a screenwriter? You know what that's like. And I said, you know, this thing is, is a director's dream. And I know you can bring this off better than anyone else could. They're going to screw it up. Any other director they hire is going to screw this thing up. And it's going to become a turkey or it's just going to become a common thing that will come and go. You can make this work. You can make people sit up and take notice like they did when they watched Alien and Star Wars. This is an opportunity you cannot throw away. This is what you did this for. You hang in there, you know. And he says, well, if they, nobody buys it, I'm going to put it in a drawer. And I said, okay, then you'll write another script. It's so great, you'll attach yourself. And he thought about it. He said, yeah, goddamn right, you know. So he said, okay, I'm not going to take the money. They have to hire me to direct it. So that required Gail Ann Hurd getting into the picture and hooking him up with uh, her her father's agents, lawyers, I should say, and they got it, introduced him to some agents, some powerful agents who got into it. You know, you get a powerful agent, all of a sudden the game changes if they're good. And they basically went to major studios and everybody said, no, he's not going to direct. He's never direct. What else did he direct? Prana to the spawning. Ha ha ha. Right. Get him away from us. We like the script, but we're never going to give it to him. So they finally found uh, through their mutual British lawyer friends, a company called Hemdale. These two guys, John Dar Daly and Derek Gibson, they would produce all these movies. And so they came to Hemdale with Terminator, with him directing. They didn't know Jim Cameron from anyone. Yeah. So, they fund the film for only $6.2 I I can't tell you how little money that is compared to that script, what it needed. It needed at least $20 million. But Jim figured out a way to do it cheap from our experiences on Xenogenesis and other projects working for Corman. So all that worked out well to help him be prepared to do it as cheaply as possible but still be effective visually. Ten times what Piranha 2 had to work with. Yes. So the scale of this is already starting to get bigger. I'm actually in the film as an extra briefly with my father, which was fun. And my father's also, my father's the only guy who was in the current time and the future war scenes. Okay. Yeah. He, you'll see him uh, in the street scenes after uh, Reese arrives. He's walking down the street and you see this old man pushing a shopping cart and like a homeless guy with a hat on. That's my dad. Okay. And he's also in the future war scenes where Reese drops down into a little enclave where there are a bunch of other survivors, human survivors of the, of the hunter killers hiding out. And my father and I are in the background, just barely in frame for about 10 seconds or no, about two seconds, actually. So I knew that the filming was going on. I was on the set that day, of course. And, and I knew some of the other problems he was having. He had to cut certain scenes because he only had $6.5 million to do this incredibly grandiose vision. So he, he kept me informed on that. 
we were in contact constantly in that time. And then he shows me the rough cut, which is almost two hours long. It's about 11 minutes longer than the final cut. And I loved every bit of it. I said, Jim, this is a great grace note. Don't cut it. And of course he wound up having to cut it. But, um, you know, the trims that he did were not terrible, but he cut this whole subplot of, of, uh, Sarah wanting to stop running from the Terminator, turn around and kill it. And he said, that's not our mission. And they have a big fight and he breaks down and cries when he sees the world that he's in now, the current world where everything is okay before the world war three that destroyed everything. And he says, where I come from, all this is gone. And he just breaks down and cries. It was a great scene, both for the actor and for the, the moment in the picture where she, the transition of power and authority goes from him to her and she becomes the mother of the future, you know, instinctually. But he cut that because it, was a, it would, would lead to a subplot that would make the film too open-ended that people thought who were co-producing the film with him. Mm-hmm. Gail was, Gail was the, his main producer who was looking out for his interest. And then there were other people from Orion and from uh, the original company that funded it, Hemdale. So he, he took it all pretty well. You know, he, he was cooperative. He cut scenes to make it work, to stay in the budget. He figured out how to, when the film was finished, to make cuts that would make it the pace faster and the movies be a little simpler. And, um, and it comes out, and Orion Pictures did everything unintentionally, did everything to just bury the film. And he showed me a, a, a memo from an executive at Orion Pictures who said, I think the Reese character needs to be more sympathetic. Why don't we shoot some additional scenes where he has a robot dog? <laughs> I'm serious. He showed me the memo. I read it and I went, Jim, what did you say to this? And he said, and this is something I, I learned from Jim. Whenever you're, you're given a stupid suggestion like that, you say, interesting idea. I'll see if I can work it in. And then the film is released and the guy goes, what happened to the robot dog? And he says, we tried to work it in. We couldn't get it in time. <laughs> so <laughs> you got to play the politics. You play the politics of people, <laughs> politics of, the, of egos in this business. There's two ways to do it, which is one where you basically just trick them or tell them what they want to know, which is what George Stevens, famous director, did. Or like Jim sometimes does, he says, every minute you're on this set, you're stopping me from making the movie and we're going to go over budget. That's your fault, not mine. Yep. Why don't you get up and leave and let me make this movie? And they yep. do. They do because he's right. Did you notice him struggling to kind of take on more and more responsibility or or how was he handling the scaling up of his production already at that point. Like a duck to water. He he was, you know, if you compare the dailies of Prana to the spawning, the best work he did on that film with the best work he did on Terminator, it's night and day. And that's because he had the context on Terminator where his ideas can be brought to fruition. Um, despite money limitations, which he was struggling with every single day, uh, trying to cram as many shots as he could in, his, in the light that was in that one day. Uh, in some cases, it was the opposite. He was trying to shoot at night, and the sun was coming up, and he had to get the shots. Right. So he was under tremendous pressure first time to be a totally responsible for a, mo- a major funding that wasn't his money and a difficult screenplay to visualize properly, not just car stunts, but all these other effects, the animation, stop-motion animation, mixed with um, you know Stan Winston's uh, full-scale Terminator and puppets, uh, all that stuff was helped by Mark Goldberg doing some incredible editing, which set the standard higher for fast-paced action films. It actually changed the way action films were being edited at that time. After that, when people realized you can do that, I mean, Mark was great at taking two shots and making them look like there were five by intercutting them. And, and uh, 
that was very helpful to the movie. But Jim, Jim is also a great editor and he knew what he had to work with. He knew all the shots. And so he was a master, not only at filming and getting people to do what he wanted, but he also was a master at post-production, which is where you finish and refine the film and make it really work. And, uh, one instance when I was on the set was when we were shooting my scenes where my father and I were in the little enclave and mm-hmm. there were people on top of it who were supposed to be um, drizzling down Fuller's Earth dirt, very fine, dusty, powdery thing to make it look like dust was being dislodged by explosions that were just above them. And uh, so they just had a little box with this Fuller's Earth in it and they were just tipping it over and letting thin trickles come down on his command, his verbal commands. He's down there behind the camera looking through the camera and the sun's starting to come up and he's losing his light. He's losing his dark, I should say. And he, he can't shoot any longer unless he gets the shot. He's not getting the shot because they're either doing, they're so tired that they're dumping too much all at once. It looks like a, an avalanche is coming or it's trickling too thinly to be read on film. Mm-hmm. And so he wants them to do it in between. And so he says, okay, guys, we need a little more. Okay, take 13 and he'd do it. And the sun's coming up. You can see the sky lightning turning blue. And and they screwed it up again. And he said, all right, God damn it. You people up there are fucking being paid to do what I say. And I'm telling you, I want it in between what you're doing. And they, they were so shocked by the tone of voice and, and that it woke them up. And their adrenaline pumped. And they got it perfect the next shot. He said, that's a take. <laughs> Fuck. Let's go. Move. You know, next setup. So, um... You know, he doesn't have a lot of patience for people. He's like, some people liken him to Otto Preminger, the way he treats the crew. He's very good with the actors. He hardly ever abuses the actors that I've seen. But he's he sometimes can be very harsh on the crew. Now, I observed him on Titanic, to jump ahead for a second, just to see how he's changed over the years. And he was much better because he had a lot of assistant directors to run interference for him. So he didn't have to directly browbeat the crew if they did something wrong. I was really interested in someplace, I can't remember where he made this comment, but he said, you know, I never had a film school upbringing. I never had the, you know, everything that I learned about a film set, I I read about somewhere and I, I put that together. So the idea of, oh, that's that guy's job. I'll let him go handle it. That's something that Jim isn't particularly comfortable with, especially if he can do it just as well himself. Or better. Or he knows, better. Because he knows exactly. See, Jim has a hard time. His ideas are so esoteric sometimes. He has a hard time speaking them out verbally. He knows in his head how it should go. And it takes him forever to explain it to someone because it's difficult to understand initially. So there's a lot of energy and time he's losing trying to explain it. So it's much better if he just goes over and does it. Okay, now let's get the shot. And he's got the energy to do it. Now it's technically illegal because of unions to do certain things like that. But he eventually joined the cameraman's union and the editing union. So now he can officially cut his own films and he can shoot his own films as cinematographer, just like Peter Hyams used to do. So Not that that probably ever stopped him very much anyway. <laughs> no, because he would just grab the camera anyway. He doesn't care about the rules, you know. And, uh, and a lot of Terminator did shoot himself. But he did have a good cinematographer with Adam Greenberg who lit it exactly the way he drew original artwork for the film when he was trying to sell it. Mm -hmm. His vision was marvelously captured. But on the set, yeah, Jim can be a bear with the crew and especially if they're screwing up. It doesn't even matter what the reason is. It's like Jim is the most generous person I think I've ever known 
if you're on his side and he knows he can trust you to do your best and you're skilled and talented and you do your best and it helps him. If for some reason you're screwing up because you're, you're not good or you're resisting him or you're having an ego clash with him or you're just in his way, he hates that. It's a big time waster. So he basically reads you the riot act and shows you the door or, or he says, or get it together and do what I just told you to do and do it well. Damn it. I'm paying you top dollar. <laughs> right. I expect the best from you. You know, he expects the best from everybody. So there's two groups of people who, who work again with Jim Cameron or don't work with him. There's the group that says, I'm never working that with that son of a bitch again, especially off of abyss. He was very tense during those scenes and very short with his crew and, and under very difficult conditions for everybody. And they were like, um, I'm never working with that guy again. He's a maniac, you know? And then there's the other group that says, man, I've done my best work with James Cameron. He makes me do my best work. He drives me and inspires me and scares the shit out of me to do the best damn thing I can. And that's a great credit for me on my resume. So I'm working with that guy anytime. Yeah. You know? And who can argue with the results? Yeah, exactly. I want to ask you about one moment you mentioned that I found really revealing. We'll be back right after this. And we're back now with Randy Frakes, who has collaborated with his friend James Cameron many a time over the past 40 years or so. Most recently, I believe, putting those journalistic skills to work again, interviewing Jim for James Cameron's story of science fiction, documentary series, as well as a beautiful hardcover book that I brought with me here. I'm putting you on the spot, but uh, we'd love to give away an autographed copy as, as a part of this. So would you sign mine? Yeah. <laughs> Great. I'll give that to you right after the fact. So I want to jump into Aliens a little bit here because okay. while filming Aliens, you were in London, James and Gail are in a flat there. And it turns out they have something called a Fairlight synthesizer in their living room. And it's your only music credit to this day. Not true. Is it not? I have a credit for a direct-to-video film called Carjack. Okay. I did the whole score myself. It's your biggest music credit so it's far. My biggest. That's yeah, sorry. <laughs> what did you use that, that Fairlight synthesizer for? I had made, when he was writing Aliens, the screenplay, I had made a tape. I've done that for him often. I make him inspirational music tapes and you know, edited cassette of music that would inspire him when he was writing Aliens. And uh, I would inter intervene with the music that I put in there from various other movies and classical music. I would inter inter interlocate uh, a sound of a, a monster like an alien scream and I did it by breathing backwards and uh, and then touching the tape as it was playing back to change the the pitch of it so it had this weird eerie sound it was like uh, Godzilla on steroids mm -hmm. and and he loved that sound he thought it was really creepy and he wanted that sound in aliens in the movie and so he went to the British sound effects guys and he said okay here's the sound give me that give me a better version of that, a better quality version of that so we can use it in the movie. And they couldn't do it. They mixed and matched animal sounds and cat screeches and things like that, played them backwards and everything. Tried to, he used some of that in the movie in the final battle between uh, Ripley and the, in the, in the Walker fighting the Queen. Some of those effects were used, so they weren't wasted. But he wasn't satisfied with all the alien screams. And he remembered me and he said, hey, Randy, you want to come and help me out? And I said, sure, I'll help you out anytime. And he said, well, I need someone to recreate that scream you did. Do you remember how you did that? And I said, well, sort of. I don't know if it's good enough to reproduce it the same way. We might have to use a computer or something, a synthesizer to do it because it'd be better quality. He said, okay, I'm going to have you come over here and I'm going to pay you and you're going to be a sound guy. 
<laughs> right? You've been a photo guy. Yeah. You've been a writer. You've been a sound. Now you're a music guy. An effects guy, visual effects guy, and, and now I'm a sound effects guy. So I go there with Bob Garrett, a friend of mine who worked on Xenogenesis mm-hmm. and other uh, sound effects on other stuff. And he eventually became a composer. He did some additional music for James Cameron's The Abyss. And uh, we go over there and they got this synclavier thing, this synthesizer. And it was just kind of actually old fashioned. It was the kind of thing we have to plug in things to change the sound. Um, but it, it also had a sampler on it so we could put sounds into it and then manipulate them. So I did my backward screech thing for the alien scream and then they would, we manipulate it, play it at different speeds, different pitches, just by pressing a keyboard. And he went, okay, that's it. That's what we, that's going in the movie. Okay, now, as long as you guys are here, you want to do some other effects? And we said, what do you need? And he told us, gave us a menu list, and we did them. And a lot of it was serendipitous. For example, in the last 10 minutes of Aliens, the, uh, the nuclear power plant is getting ready to blow. So everything's overheating. The pipes are overheating. You see him turning red. And as she's running around trying to get the kid and get out of there. And uh, so he said he needed... Uh, sounds like the machine coming apart slowing down and getting ready to blow so i i had no idea how to do that so i'm sitting here playing with the synthesizer sampler and i overloaded it i ran it through a loop and it just started going like that and i started playing with it and it started sounding like machine noises that were repeating fast and then slow so i just recorded them and i played them for and went yeah that's great i'll cut them in and see if they work now, we were unofficially working there because we didn't have a work permit. So we had to be kept away from the studio. And what he would do is he would take our effects, take the tape, take it in to them and say, okay, transfer it to 35 millimeter tape and cut it in where necessary. And they go, where are you getting these effects? And he goes, I'm making them myself. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. So basically, um, that's how he got around that. And so we wound up, Bob and I wound up doing probably about a third of the sound effects for the movie. Uh, the best sound effect that he did produce was the breathing of the queen alien when it's stomping around looking for the little girl under the grate. Mm-hmm. That was Jim going, he was really great, <laughs> very organic and everything. And, uh, and that was his sound effects contribution. The rest of it was just, you know, he said, okay, for the egg chamber scene where she jumps in there with the kid and sees the queen laying the eggs, I need some really squishy sounds. And I'd done some of that for Prana too. So I used the same technique, which is I got a raw chicken put it in a bowl of water and just started squeezing it, squishing it, pulling it apart slowly. And then they added the sound of someone twisting a uh, leather belt to add it, add it in. And those, that was what that sound was. Ugh. And the only, the only time you hear the alien screech without any processing is when she blows it out of the ship at the end mm-hmm. and it's falling. That scream is just me breathing backwards. I can reproduce it here if you want. Yeah. Okay. Let's see if I can not blow out your microphone. Something, something like that. I, I think you blew out the microphone, yeah, but sorry. we get the idea. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but so uh, I did that, and then we actually wound up getting credit. But it was a weird credit. It didn't say sound effects because it would be a union violation. It said special synthesized effects. I think uh-huh. so. There was no music. We didn't do any music. It was all sound effects. You know, you talked about kind of some of the the union issues, regulations, some of the rules in London. That being very strict. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're here at the home of, of uh, Randy Frick. So these, can you identify which, which puppy that is? That's Dobie, Loba, and uh, Princess. 
the three principal dogs I have, there's another dog too, adding his his thing. But they're they're hearing someone coming back or passing by in the street and they bark. And it's like one barks, the other one has to bark. Who needs a doorbell? That's right. A really difficult thing for a lot of American filmmakers is the culture shock of London and the way filmmaking works there. George Lucas famously struggled with this. James did as well. Had to defuse a mutiny at one point, but the tea breaks at 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock. Um, yeah, and no matter he, what, if you're in the middle of a shot or not, shut the down. <laughs> shut right. down the lights and, and let's stop and do it. it. It was, you know, a, a way we've described Jim Cameron, you could see how that would be extremely frustrating to him, mm-hmm. especially when he doesn't have enough money or time to do what he needs to do to get the vision he wants. And these guys are like saboteurs from his point of view. Now, they have their point of view, and it makes sense. But that's definitely a clash there. And there was an additional problem, which is that most of that crew had actually worked on Alien for Ridley Scott, who was also a Britisher, who had been a very experienced director of commercials and was well-known and respected at that time and had a good way of dealing with his crew to get him on his side. And Jim was like aggressive and let's get this shot done and just do what I say and don't ask me questions or argue it, just do it. And immediately put him off. And also they're going, what's this young American arrogant son of a bitch doing ordering us around he doesn't know shit what is he trying to do this shot this way for it's so stupid you know so he had all that kind of resistance that any director would have plus extra resentment against him and he being james cameron at the time under the pressures he was under wasn't capable of going all right guys let's all be nice and be friends and i know you guys are gonna want to work on this film and show off your best talents and everything he was like get the thing done damn it you're going to have your tea break in 10 minutes. I want this shot completed before then. You know, and they were like, well, fuck you. Yeah. Pardon my French, but, you know, maybe they said it a little more sophisticated than British. <laughs> right. But, you know, they're, they're a tough lot. They have very tough unions and hard-won uh, battles over the years to not be abused and by producers. And, you know, so Jim was just having a hard time adjusting to that. Under other circumstances, if he were one of the crew himself, he'd probably appreciate it. Sure. But, you know, that was in a contentious and conflicting situation. So he sort of mostly jokingly told the crew he was glad he'd never see their sorry faces again. Yeah. Well, was that a joke? It was probably true in a moment. You know, looking back on it, you probably laugh at it himself. But, um, you know, Jim has a good sense of humor about most things. And he recognizes, he's told me many times, look, I'm trying to be a nice guy on set, but they just so frustrate me, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's so hard for me to do it. I'm trying to get better. I think I got better at it, but man, these guys, it's like, they're, they're like, they suddenly, as soon as you start paying them, they seem to turn into morons. And he's talking about all his crews, not, not just the British ones. The truth is though, he does respect, he respects, uh, I think his name is Josh McLaughlin. He's the, uh, second unit director or, or not, I'm sorry, assistant director on, um, Titanic and many other films for him. He's a stunt guy he loves. There's a bunch of other people who bust their ass for him and he appreciates it. And he's very generous with them, both emotionally and and the way he treats them and and financially. And it's just, you know, there are some people who are, uh, Jerry Lewis said it best in The Total Filmmaker, a book he wrote a long time ago about filmmaking. He says, there's always going to be someone on the crew that wants to sabotage your movie for one reason or another. They hate you. They hate your movie. They don't think they're getting paid enough or they're underappreciated. They will do things to screw your movie up. And you have to identify them and get rid of them right away or you're going to be in trouble. And, you know, I never told Jim that, but Jim's learned that himself. 
Yeah. He's been through a few of those that have really thrown a wrench into things. I don't think Jim has ever made a film where he could say, well, that was easy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's true. I want to ask you about after Aliens came out, you're at a gathering with James and his dad, Philip, and you encouraged Philip to give Jim a little nudge, say he's doing a good job. Why did you feel like that would be important for Jim to hear from his dad? Well, because I think he'd earned it. You know, he'd like earned it over many times. And I just think it would be stubborn and, and cruel of Phil not to acknowledge his achievements in the field that he's chosen, whether Phil liked the, the field or not. And, you know, Phil's a, a, of a certain generation, a certain age, a certain worldview that is different from Jim's anyway. So when he looks at Jim's films, he's not particularly as fond of them as some of the fans are. Right. Some elements of them anyway probably irk him because they're liberal or... You know, like in Avatar, for example, there's this speech that justifies the whole movie for me where, he's, where he says, this is how it's done. You make enemies of people who have things you want to take. You know, and that's a statement for all humankind, the human history of groups of people trying to exploit others. And Phil probably wouldn't look at it that way. He would think that would be too simplistic and, and too contentious uh, regarding corporate behavior in America mm-hmm. or in the, around the world this day. So... You know, so they're never going to be aligned perfectly. Did Jim ever know that you you gave Philip a little nudge? I don't think so. I never told him. And surely his mother told me, I asked her about that, and I said, what's the deal with Phil and, and Jim? And she told me a little bit about it from her point of view, what, how she understood it. And I said, I want to talk to him. And she said, go ahead, go ahead. So I went over and talked to him, put my arm around him. I said, Phil, let's talk a little bit about your son. And I never told Jim about that because I didn't know if it was going to have any effect, negative or positive. Coming up after this, I'm, I'm really excited to ask you about something that stings for any up-and-coming filmmaker. When your movie gets a ton of praise and then you get snubbed by the Academy, <laughs> by the Academy Awards, and that's what happened with Aliens. So that's coming up right after this. Back here now with Randy Frakes. Before I ask about the Academy, Jim and Gail both snubbed from an Academy nomination after all of the success of Aliens started. But first, I wanted to ask you your favorite kind of creative memory, being with James and figuring things out. I wrote a script for him based on his idea, which was similar to an idea I had about the same time, called Screaming Steel. It's never been produced, and other writers have worked on it since then. And I don't know if it's ever going to see the light of a projector, but um, we had long discussions about how to lay that story out that were similar to what we did on Terminator, but more detailed because I was actually going to write the first draft. And it was basically about a future L.A. where there are cops who ride uh, the equivalent of motorcycles, but they, they fly. And there are gangs, like biker gangs, that ride these things. They're called pocket rockets. And uh, the, the son of one of the cops has figured out that some of the cops are corrupt and he's not sure if his father is one of them or not. And so in his own way, he's trying to find out what's really going on while they're doing all these bizarre chases in the city and stuff. And, um, you know, he, he read the script. Jim is very good at what he wants, what he doesn't want. He's not quite sure how to explain to you what he wants because sometimes he can't nail it down right away. And one of the reasons why he uses collaborators to write with is because the collaborators usually will come up with all the mediocre, stupid ideas and halfway decent ideas, so he doesn't have to. And he just looks at it and goes, well, that's half of a good start. 
let me take that in a different direction. Let me turn that upside down and go backwards with it. Mm-hmm. You know, he's good at shifting things around to get a better take on an idea. Yeah. So when I was working with him on Screaming Steel, I, I wrote the first draft and he came in with all these notes and I went, good God, this guy's way better than me. For the first time, I realized, you know, he had learned from me and then gone way beyond his teacher, you know. So now the teacher's learning from him, both technically and from story. And I said, Jim, did you intend to do this this way? And he said, yeah, of course I did. I don't know if he was lying or not, but, you know, I said, that's really good. It's like in uh, Terminator Dark Fate, just for a second as an illustrating point, I've been arguing with him over time to say, look, it's too late in the world to do movies where the crisis is solved or the conflict is solved by violence. There's too many weapons of mass destruction. We're too late. And it's too late in the world for flags. It's too late in the world for weapons. It's too late in the world for just slapping someone down who you disagree with or who is threatening you. We got we to gotta model some kind of better, more sophisticated way for us all to get along, right? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. I'll find a tree for you to hug, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, you know, he's basically a liberal too, so that's not an unlikely thought for him too, but he just doesn't believe in it the way I do, that it's possible. He knows the human history and he goes... We're all idiots and we're all, like he said in Terminator 2, when the kids are playing with each other with guns, fake guns, he says, the kid says, uh, we're doomed, aren't we? And he said, yeah, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. And that's Jim's thought, right? It's always been his thought of it. He has a cynical side to survival of the human species. But so I told him, well, let's help that by trying to model so that people can see it and we'll normalize it. We don't do speeches about it. We just show it. People doing conflict resolution that doesn't necessarily involve violence. It involves something else, something that's even more courageous. The most courageous man in the room is when there's two guys aiming at each other with a gun, the man who puts the gun down first and says, let's talk. That to me is a more courageous and heroic person than the person who pulls the trigger and goes, ha ha, I killed you before you could kill me. It just seems stupid to me. And, you know, maybe I'm an idiot, but that's what I put in all my writing. So that's the reason, by the way, why I didn't write on Avatar because it had a violent conflict resolution with, you know, right out of Star Wars. Uh, right, right. Return of the Jedi type thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe satisfying on some level, but it, it's, can we not project some more sophisticated way for us to interact with each other when we have conflicts? And so he's basically down with that idea, but he said, I can't do that with Avatar. And he said, well, then I can't write it because I don't want to, I ethically can't do it anymore. I just get a block. I wouldn't be any use to you. So I didn't do the first draft of Avatar with him. And uh, so basically he, he said, I might be able to work these ideas into the sequels to Avatar, like the last one maybe. Uh, would, it, would it upset your ethics if you worked on consulting with me on the stories? And that made me laugh because he can be very cuttingly funny. You know, is that going to hurt your ethics to work on the sequels? <laughs> I said, sure. No, uh, I'll do it, you know, and uh, as long as there's a chance for that. And so he did, and I don't think he's going to do it, but you never know. Going back, Aliens really gave James his first taste of big success. The Oscar nominations came out, and the film gets other nominations, but he snubbed as Best Director. Gale snubbed for the Best Picture category given to producers. Now, I know he'd say that that stuff probably doesn't matter, but... No, he'd be lying because I saw his reaction when he won the awards for Titanic, and he was over the moon. And he loves approbation from strangers. I don't. I, I can't stand it. It freaks me out. <laughs> but, I mean, I saw him with the governor of California and a bunch of other political people, as well as celebrities, are in this mass of people waiting at the end of Titanic at the after party 
to talk to him and congratulate him. And I mean, there's hundreds of people and he's in the middle of this beehive of people pressing against him to try and get to him, including, you know, the governor at the time of California. And I'm going, and I'm looking at Jim's face and going, he's loving this. I'd, I'd hate this. I can't stand this. So do you think that, but, but you gotta, you gotta think about the Academy Awards, how it's set up to understand why these things happen. Some of the best scores that have ever been composed for films have not won because like, you know, Shaft wins because it's really applicable to a popular film and it, and it sort of is a popular piece of music wins over all these much better composed scores that do double duty, helping the movies work emotionally. Well, it's because the nominations are voted on by the people like the composers vote on who should be nominated for composing scores. Nobody else in the Academy has anything to do with that. So when you get a nomination, it's actually much better than getting the actual award because they're your peers. They understand what you went through, what you had to go through, and they appreciate they're nominating you because they understand that you did something really good under the circumstances. Now, who votes the final Oscar? Who gets the Oscar goes to is the entire... Academy and then most everyone the, in every branch, right? And every and most of the Academy members are actors. Now I should stop and say enough said, but the truth is, <laughs> then it becomes a popularity contest. No more sophisticated than the Golden Globes, where the movie that made the most money or made the most cultural impact is going to get Best Picture, not the one that was actually better done. Like a good example is Hurt Locker versus Avatar. You know, Jim definitely should have got the Best Director award for Avatar because he literally made almost every famous film himself. I mean, designed it on a computer to the way it looked. He edited it. He, he shot most of it on a digital virtual camera. He, he's responsible for the most of the lighting, even though the Oscar went to the cinematographer on the film. He's the one that built the lightings into the set, just like he did on Xenogenesis. And so the bigger snub was Avatar. But Aliens got nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Actress for Sigourney Weaver. Right. That's unheard of for that kind of a movie, that genre. And, and it was a remarkable thing at the time. So looking at the glass half full, even though he wasn't nominated and, and there only were technical, technical awards eventually awarded it to it, uh, it was still a major change in how the Academy looked at those types of films. And uh, it, it, it was, all those nominations were well-deserved, including the nomination for Best Sound Effects, which it did win. And, of course, I saw no Oscar because I was not a union member. And so the Oscar always goes to the head of the department. So the British guy who didn't do those sound effects we did that helped make the film win an Oscar, mm -hmm. he got the Oscar. He's got it on his mantle somewhere. Ah. So I can say that I am indirectly an Oscar-winning sound snubbed. effects guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, one thing you told me when we chatted before was your message to James when he, I believe, after Aliens, he was feeling de you know depressed and kind of confused about what he was doing, what he was going to do next. His dad thought he was wasting his talents. Of course, we've talked about that on fantasy stories, science fiction, a lot of that. And you challenged him a bit and had an answer for that. Do you remember what you told him? It was You mentioned Star Trek and how that has inspired so many people to go and become NASA engineers. Well, this is a, an ongoing discussion between him and me. Uh, I'll call it a discussion. I'll say a debate, which is <laughs> how much films can actually change culture or change people. And, you know, I was watching films from Stanley Kramer on the beach and Inherit the Wind, etc. And I saw those films change me. 
they made me think about things in a different way. They made me think about life and philosophy and the, the institutions that were working in America at the time with some doubt and some questioning. They made me more aware and alert to, to not just accept whatever was put before me. And I thought, that's a great thing. That's a useful thing. Americans need to be hyper alert and hyper critical and, and demanding of their, their public servants. But um, so I'm a living example of someone who was affected and changed. You know, I read a lot of different things from conservative to radical liberals. And I wound up somewhere slightly toward the left, but more in the middle. And, and I don't think one solution fits all situations. So I'm not a party member or anything sure. like that. But I, I, I've tried to convince Jim that when you do these movies and you say things like an avatar about this is how we do things to steal things from people, we make them enemies. I mean, that can have a profound effect on some young child. I'm not talking about adults. I'm talking about the next generation who's going to shape the world, maybe save it, maybe destroy it. So if we're going to make movies and they're going to be mass media entertainment and they're going to like be seen by billions of people, shouldn't we be saying things that are encouraging behavior that is better, you know, for, for saving our planet from environmental rape, from saving each other, from killing each other over stupid reasons? You know, can't we just demonstrate without speeches to show, normalize good behavior, humanistic behavior? I remember Patty Chayesky was quoted in a book, Crafted the Screenwriter, where the guy asked him, well, what is it you think is missing in modern movies? And this is back in the 70s, mid-70s. And he said, common human decency. And I thought, wow, that's so true. What movies we're doing now, the Marvel movies and all these things, they have little stabs at it because they're not idiots. They know they have to engage the audience. They have mm-hmm. to get these characters to be vulnerable and, and likable as well as heroic. And But it's very little and in between. And movies you see back in the old days, they may, to this generation, be slow as molasses, but they're about deep, you know, explorations of character, characters making difficult ethical choices where there's no real good right answer. And they have to find their way through it, you know. And I, th- I try to convince Jim of this and say, look, what you're doing is not going unheeded. You know, when you try to do a movie and put in lines like that and try and your whole approach to Avatar... Uh, is an example of you trying to reach an audience. And he goes, no, I'm not. I'm just trying to tell a story. I don't care about politics and that stuff, but I know that's not true, in my opinion. Because he's motivated to be a humanist. He's motivated to want the human... He wants to cheer the human race on so they can survive themselves, their worst natures, you know. So he agrees with me in practice, in creating stories where there are characters you really care about. All his movies are love stories. And part of that love story is not only between the characters, but between human beings and their destiny, you know, their better destiny. So I'm, to sum it up, I'm, I'm saying that Jim personally would probably never admit to anybody, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm out here crusading for better behavior between humans and, and nonviolent solutions to, to conflicts. But he does it, you know, it's in his nature to do it, to, to illustrate it, just not as much as me. That's a great way to put it couple other questions that we have. We'll be right back with final questions with Randy Frakes right after this. And we're back now with Randy Frakes, who's known James Cameron for more than 40 years now. 45 years? Is that about right? 45 would be closer. Somewhere in there. You know him very well. James told me in an interview a couple years ago for a documentary about film composers, he admitted, he says, he's not always the best friend to people. He's focused on other things and sometimes comes across in ways that he doesn't mean with people that he cares about. 
What is James like as a friend, just person to person? Uh, I would say fascinating because of the things he thinks about, which are way out of the ordinary. Very little of his thoughts are trivial. And um, very warm and generous with his, his thoughts and his time, his emotions, you know. When I see him sometimes at some event, like, for example, we were at the Center of Dome for the premiere for All Mankind, that documentary, and I saw him in the lobby, and he came up to me and embraced me in front of all these people, and I didn't expect that. And uh, he's he's a guy who's very, very um, loving with his family. Very, He's also hawk-eyed. He protects his friends. If he's in a situation where his friends are going to be in trouble in some way, he will go and interfere and protect them. He's a very protective guy. He's very responsible, I would say. He takes on the responsibility. He takes on, he's like Atlas. He'll take on everything on his own shoulders. And sometimes that costs him. You know, he looks a lot older than me, but I'm like seven years older than him. <laughs> and, you know, that's why I don't want to direct because I'm not going to look this way. <laughs> if I directed a movie, I'd suddenly be like 90. Right. But um, if you're doing it right. But, uh, yeah, he's, he's a really nice guy, a really good guy, a really fascinating friend to have. We used to go see movies together sometimes, even in the later days. Last time we did that was uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong. He came out to where I was living in Woodland Hills at the time and went to a little local theater, multiplex. And it's so funny because we go in there and people go, as we're passing, is that, is that? Nah, couldn't be. What would he be doing here? That looks like James Cameron. Nah. You know, no one comes up to him because he's too intimidating. They don't believe it's really him. So we went in and we saw King Kong and I remember him coming out and he says, well, I'm, I'm going to probably not be so obsessed with being scientifically accurate anymore because that movie was so scientifically <laughs> inaccurate, but it was still fun. Yeah. You know, and, uh, but we haven't done it since then. We haven't just hung out together and talked like we used to, but that's okay. It's an evolution of the, the relationship. Anytime he wants to, he can e email me. I mean, email him maybe every six weeks or so I email him something. There's a moment in our series where James goes on Late Night with David Letterman for the first time. And it's 1989, around the time The Abyss is coming out. And I found it so interesting in hindsight that David Letterman clearly has no familiarity with the name James Cameron. And it's one of those those weird things now, you know, see someone before they achieve this unprecedented fame and being in many ways a household name. What's still the same about him? That drive, that focus, that ambition to do better. Than he has a, a post that he puts up on his computer every time he starts to write a script. It says, good enough isn't, you know, which drives people crazy because he keeps trying to get it right. And, and by right, he means his subjective view of what is perfect, which some people sign on for and some people don't. Um, but, and, and uh, he's, he's just driven still. And still very interested in doing a film in a way that causes people to sit up and take notes, not only for the content, but for the style of telling the story. And he's constantly thinking about stuff like that. And and he's he's just a passionate guy, very passionate guy. He's passionate with his kids. He's passionate with his wife. He's passionate with his career. And he's a really good friend. James always felt like he had to work his way to the same level of talent as people like Marty Scorsese and, and Steven Spielberg and people that, that have always been known as great filmmakers. James didn't feel like he had the same talent to be able to do that. There's a difference between a filmmaker who goes out on the limb and, and measures himself against the greats 
or someone who just thinks about it is really just a fan. And for example, you look at the whole works of Howard Hawks. He did all kinds of genres, especially Westerns very well, but he also did screwball comedy and, and dramas. Howard Hawks, if anyone remembers him, was an amazing guy, had a very adventuresome life. And you watch his movies and you go, how can I ever compete? How can I ever be better than that? That's the best version of that kind of movie I've ever seen. There's Billy Wilder. These people are really good at what they did. They made, you know, mistakes. They made failed movies occasionally. But some of their films that are great are really great, very memorable. They're top of the top of the line, top shelf movies. So you have to say, okay, I'm going to have to do as good as that, maybe better. And I'm just going to have to think about how to do that. What would make it better? So I would tell Jim, let's watch a Howard Hawks film and see how we could make it better. How do we think we could make that as good as it is, better. What could we have cut or added that would make it work better? And he would sit there and analyze. He was so very good at analyzing stuff like that. And he would come up with things. I'd come up with things. We'd argue about it. And then finally we'd come to a consensus about it. And I said, see, Jim, you can do it. You can do this. You know, and he just thought about it. He said, yeah, I guess I can. And then he did it. He went out and did it. What makes James Cameron exceptional? Uh, his devotion to detail his commitment to carry out a task once he, he assigns himself. He um, has an unerring eye for truth and accuracy in how he's depicting things, however fanciful it seems at the time. It's well-researched. Believe me, most of the things in Avatar could happen in real life at some time in the future. And, um, and he has this amazing vision a bigger, grander vision for human beings than most people individually realize is possible. Randy Frakes, author, screenwriter, and a good friend and supporter, one of the uh, world's greatest filmmakers of all time. Randy, such a pleasure. Thank you for doing this. Thank you.